AVXL episode 168 was recorded on February 5th, 2022. Is there a $100 soundbar worth owning? Phillips brings the first LG OLED EX TVs to market. Calman 2022. What's new with Rob's fave calibration software, Sonos versus Google, and replacing a dead fulla? All that and so much more. And please don't forget, email ask at avxcel.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Seriously, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxcel. Your monthly donation makes this show possible, and we appreciate that. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is and no matter how questionable my taste is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. Hopefully you have not suffered me humming strange early 90s dance tracks to myself while Rob ran off to kill a background piece of noise with fire and sticks. Hey, sometimes totally random music is what is needed. <laughs> it wasn't random, <laughs> but it's bringing back memories. Uh, not bringing back memories because it's a new thing is uh, LG's display OLED.EX glass or panel technology. And you got two things to talk about here. One is, is panels from LG Electronics, the C2 and G2 televisions. And the other is Philips the first company to actually bring this new LG display technology to market. And what is it? And why should we care? And can we ever watch the Olympics without having a spoiler? Or sh- yeah, That's later, sorry. Hang in there, man. Hang in there. Yeah, uh, the OLED EX technology from LG Display, not to be confused mm-hmm. with LG Electronics, is their latest and greatest in OLED display tech that incorporates, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the deuterium compounds for improved color. And I'm hoping that means specifically color gamut and the robustness of the individual pixels. So they're claiming up to a 30% increase in light output compared to the regular OLED panels. Now, Philips Electronics is introducing the model 807. And this is actually the first OLED television that we've seen in the wild that mentions specifically the use of this LG display panel tech. They're gonna have four screen sizes starting at 48 inches, 55, 65, and 77. This is not coming to the United States, but maybe our neighbors up in Canada may get a crack at it. More for the European markets. Judging by the way folks seem to be responding to the specifics of what makes that OLED EX panel so unique, one of them is a slimmer bezel design compared to past OLED panels. And they're comparing that directly to the newly announced C2 and G2 panels from LG Electronics, noting that they are specking thinner bezels on those panels. And folks are making the assumption that these new C2 and G2 panels, all of the G2 panels and the larger C2 panels to be specific, will probably, probably incorporate the OLED EX technology from LG Display. Interesting. LG has been curiously quiet on this issue and I have pinged them a few times about it. I've noticed the wording from everyone at this point is the assumption of that very thing. It is not a confirmed thing, but it would be nice to see that technology actually make it out. <laughs> and if Philips is already doing it, this kind of lends more credence to it. If we look back at the December 2021 press release from LG Display, 
they specifically mentioned integrating this panel technology, the OLED EX, into all OLED TV displays manufactured at their newest plants, including Paju, South Korea, and Guangzhou, China. And they're saying that this will occur by the second quarter of 2022, which kind of lines up nicely with what we're seeing in terms of maybe the delivery dates for the C2 and the G2 panels. I am not saying this is fact. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't make it into the C2 and the G2. I certainly hope that OLED EX technology does make it into those panels. But until LG actually says so, or we can get one in hand and measure it one way or the other, that's uh, to be determined. It will remain unknown. (laughs) Yeah. So something we were talking about uh, before we started recording, we've seen a lot of price increases on consumer electronics in various corners uh, especially with speakers and, and other things. You don't really anticipate, do you anticipate any kind of big shift in the cost of televisions this year? Or televisions, you know, is there enough price elasticity in there where they can absorb the additional shipping cost or or component costs? I'm seeing that a lot of the more premium models, and I'm looking specifically mm-hmm. at things like the C2 panel from LG that is oh so popular if you look at like the history of the C1 and their C line in general just for that right. performance in OLED. It looks like this year we're seeing about a $100 price increase in terms of the MSRP. That's not a lot generally, and I would expect right. that given some time in the market, you're going to see the typical decreases in pricing. One thing, though, if I could quickly go back to the C2 in particular, mm-hmm. and this may affect the G2 as well, but one of the neat things about that panel that I'm most looking forward to is the potential in weight reduction for that panel compared to the C1. They're claiming in the 65-inch panel size, the C2 will weigh about 40 over 40% less through the use of new composite materials, uh, a nice sandwiched material rather than perhaps the metal that they're currently using in that design. Getting that weight down that much in one generation is something I'm looking forward to seeing and feeling and actually understanding if it affects the longevity maybe or the durability of the panel itself. I kind of doubt it. I think this falls under the we wait with braided breath. Yeah, not terrible. (laughs) Not a terrible waiting game at this point. Switching gears, you have been doing a ton of calibration already. You know, we're like... 35-ish days into uh, 36 days, 35, 36 days into 2022, and you've had two or three major gigs already. What have you been finding out with the new CalMan 2022 build and with some of the new TVs and projectors you've gotten hands-on with? I am actually digging the latest beta build for, I think they're going to call it CalMan 2022. Internally, they still refer to it as 2021, but if you look at like the file, (laughs) it does say CalMan 2022. Anyway, They've added support for all sorts of new hardware out there, including some of the latest 8K pattern generators from the folks at Meridio, uh, including their new 7G and the classic 6G. If you're looking for a really high-end signal generator system that ties quite nicely into the CalMan software. Also, I had recently calibrated an EP950 Pro OLED monitor from LG, and they've now added uh, SDR mode for doing AutoCal on that. The thing that's missing still is an HDR mode for calibrating that display as well, although you can still do that manually. They've also added some additional TV support for the 2021 Samsung TVs, as well as some of their new projectors from LG, especially their laser designs. And 
it's got some beta things to it. Like I found a few typos and stuff like that, but I haven't found anything that is a fail, so to speak, in terms mm-hmm. of just getting the work done. I did suggest a few specific features I'd like to see added that might make it easier for folks working in the field, but I can get into that at another time. Uh, recently, as far as what I've been looking at, I spent a very long day calibrating five projectors at a local facility. They were all Panasonic projectors, including three that were actual laser models. I would say the star or the main projector for this presentation facility was the RZ-12K. This is a three-chip DLP laser projector. It's about $45,000, and it was quite lovely for the quality as a you know, quote unquote presentation projector. I was actually quite pleased at how well it did with even home theater style content. Uh, I would not recommend that projector for home theater, uh, but for a presentation projector, it looked damn lovely. (laughs) They also had a couple of, I'd say step down models to the sides of the main projector. So it was like a three screen setup for the main plus a couple of uh, ancillary projectors on the sides that were lamp based, but still quite nice and all Panasonic's and all fairly easy to work on. It was quite a day and quite fun and ended up finding one projector that had a lamp module that went kaput or it was so degraded at this point that it basically shifted all of the color in the projector coming out of it toward yellow. And folks had been doing everything in the menus they could to correct that, but it was just time (laughs) to replace that lamp. And then yesterday I looked at a classic, quote unquote classic C9 OLED from LG. That's the same TV actually I own as well. And that's still a great TV now that it's been fully updated. If you can assume that update that came out recently is probably going to be the last one. And that TV is now officially as good as it gets. I currently have about 1500 hours on mine and it's just over two years old. I also had someone with a C6 OLED from 2016 Pygmy uh, about getting it calibrated. And that is a manual calibration to say the least <laughs> there is no auto that anything was a pretty with painful cow was gonna say that was pretty painful for you to deal with in the early days especially it just depends how well that tv's been taken care of and you can get terrific image quality out of them doing it i appreciate challenges that is a lot of work to go in and out of those menus over and over and over again with no <laughs> easy way of doing like direct display control And probably next week, I'll be taking a look at an A90J from Sony. That should be just a very lovely TV. And I've been putting that on this 10-meter 8K60 fiber HDMI cable I picked up from uh, Cable Matters to very good use. And I have had nothing but flawless performance. It works like an HDMI cable should. And that's just a a convenient, long cable that doesn't take up a lot of space. And still my go-to for long runs for HDMI are those fiber cables like that one from Cable Matters. Pretty good price. I think I paid about 100 bucks for it, for the 10-meter version. And, you know, if it prevents having multiple callbacks, <laughs> if you don't have to ever string it again, it's, it's worth the money. Totally. Or if you really do need to push, you know, high bandwidth HDMI video over very long distances, there is arguably no better way to do it currently. Quick shout out to our patrons, patreon.com slash AVXL. Uh, Everybody who contributes at patreon.com slash AVXL, you make this show possible, and we really, really appreciate you. We're going to be back on track. Uh, We did not charge for December or January uh, because we did not do four episodes in each of those months, so wanted to give you a heads up on that. Uh, We'll be having a hangout this month, and I've got some uh, interviews I recorded that I'll be sharing to our patrons uh, in their entirety. We'll probably use uh, some short clips from each one of those on the main 
main show. But uh, I got really in-depth with uh, John Sieber over at JDS Labs last week to talk about a new product they launched. I'll mention that later in this show. But also dealing with, as an engineer, what exactly does, you know, digitally controlling volume mean and why audiophiles have traditionally been so against it. I swear it is a fascinating conversation because we also talk about uh, some of what's going on with designing super clean, high-performance audio gear. That was a fun conversation for me, and hopefully our patrons will enjoy that. And we will have some clips from John talking about what he was working on in next week's episode. So thank you once again to our patrons, patreon.com slash AVXL. Yeah. Virilio tweeted, have you reviewed the Vanadu Transparent One Encore powered speakers? No, I have not heard them, but they have an excellent rep from a lot of different directions uh, from, uh, you know, <laughs> Audio Express, Stereophile, and several other publications. It's interesting. Um, they haven't been reviewed widely, but uh, most of the places that have reviewed them have been uh, really positive about them. Or maybe they've been reviewed widely and I just haven't seen any of the reviews. But essentially, so powered speakers, powered monitors, studio monitors, whatever you call them, they're essentially speakers with built-in amps. At their most extreme, they include uh, not just an amp, but a DAC and a DSP. So you can, you know, run, uh, in the case of the Vanity, right, USB, Toslink, coax, uh, analog, Bluetooth inputs. Um, one of the things I really like about the Vanity that a lot of uh, studio monitors don't have is a subwoofer output. This is a good thing if you are listening to music and you are not, you know, well, period. I'm just going to say that flat out. Uh, if you want low end out of small speakers, a subwoofer is a big deal. These are fairly powerful speakers. They're like bi-amped 100 watts per channel, which is a lot if you're thinking about something that's going to be within relatively uh, arm's reach on a desktop. Kef's uh, LS50 Wireless made uh, the powered speaker concept kind of a big deal in the audiophile world. But seriously, powered studio monitors, they've been on every editing station uh, I've seen in, in the video editing world for a couple decades now. Genelec makes some of the best and most respected studio monitors on the planet. Uh, there's some really good stuff from JBL, uh, Adam Audio's T5V. I've seen a lot of people really happy with that. Cali Audio's LP6 has a great rep. Wirecutter is a big fan of Mackie's CR5 XBT. Those sell for $220 a pair. They do a lot of things right, and a lot of small, inexpensive studio monitors do a lot of things wrong. So uh, shout out to Mackie and the CR5 XBT. If you need a desktop speaker or a small home theater speaker, uh, or you're in a dorm room or you don't have a lot of space, you just have a lot of money, uh, I still have a lot of love for Klipsch's Pro Media 2.1 THX. They're essentially computer speakers, but they work at a lot of places that aren't computer desktops, and they're shockingly good sound with their subwoofer. Um, you know, you're not going to mistake it for like a Sioux or a Monoprice Monolith or an SVS subwoofer, but you know, they really round out these tiny satellite speakers, and they sound particularly good. I've always been impressed with those. Um, I ran a pair of those on my desktop for a long time, and I think they sell for like 125 bucks on Amazon right now. Classic, but wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and and props to Clips for for keeping those things going. Uh, they show up at Costco too at a pretty good rate, um, or pretty inexpensively. Speaking of affordable audio, oh, but to to get back to to Virilio's question, um, most people I've heard, I've I've read or watched videos of uh, that have uh, spent time with the Vanity Transparent One really like them. I don't know if I've seen. I take it back. I have seen uh, John Atkins at Stereophile measured them, and they're they're pretty solid. A little bit of a dip at the at the sort of super high end. A little bit of a bump, uh, probably around 100 125 hertz, which is kind of typical. But uh, 
people seem to think they are a quality sounding speaker. Hopefully I'll get a chance to get ears on with them at some point. Ooh, they apparently have B-stock in. Oh, the the B-stock nope. is out of stock. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely not the most expensive monitors, but not the cheapest either. They're like 600 a pair. Uh, you can get them for 500 uh, when they have B-stock available. B-stock having been very difficult to find in the plague years for the last 18 months or so on any quality audio gear. I've seen uh, studio monitors, power monitors in the thousands of dollars range. I've seen them for 150 bucks. This is a market where it's all over the map. And if you have a guitar center near you uh, and you want to hear a bunch of stuff from JBL Mackie and a bunch of other companies, uh, if you get lucky, they'll have Adam Audio. Uh, I don't know if Genelec shows up, but some of the Genelec stuff is spectacularly good. JBL is almost always in those. That's a place where you can go and audition a bunch of these speakers and get your earballs on them. Earballs. I have to stop saying that. Uh. Michael, <laughs> getting back to the, the budget end of things, uh, Michael, a.k.a. at CMM270, tweeted, I would like to know a good sound bar for around 100 to $130 for my living room. Also, my TV is really dark during the daytime, then at night a little too bright. It's in my living room where there is lots of light. It's a Samsung Series 6 LCD. Thanks, Michael. You know, in theory, your television should adjust for radical changes in brightness, but maybe not enough. (laughs) Or it just doesn't do it very well. That's probably the biggest problem with the automatic systems that monitor room lighting. I assume they've gotten better over time. That is something I don't test as much as I probably should. I am usually simply turning all of those features off and configuring a bright and a nighttime preset just to make it easy to switch back and forth when need be. HDR and Dolby Vision kind of help a little bit. You're typically making those as bright as possible anyway. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it would be nice. If they actually could just have like either a timer built into the TV or although that's a pain too, it it is kind of a hassle. It would be great to have a system that's fully automated for maintaining that eye comfort. Maybe Michael does a brightness and a darkness preset so he can at least get it to a one button switch question mark. Totally. Is that something that's easy for end users to set up? He says as he stares at his projector that works best in dark rooms with no lights, so that's where he watches it. (laughs) That cinema or movie picture preset is going to be probably the best option for darkroom viewing. And then I go for the natural or standard preset for daytime viewing. That's the quick and easy one that pretty much applies to just about any TV at any price point. There's usually a couple of picture presets. One of them is usually a more cinema or a movie style preset that has very accurate color, but it won't look great unless the room's pretty dark. Otherwise, yeah, that standard preset where they punch up the color palette a little bit in addition to just maybe tweaking with contrast to get extra brightness out of it. That's like your two go-tos right there. On TVs like my C9 OLED, I actually have a couple of really nice programmable presets available. Uh, The expert darkroom and brightroom presets, which are awfully handy, and I do appreciate things like that. It's nice when everything works. Yeah. I got to give a big shout out to Brent Butterworth and the crew over at Wirecutter because they just finished a big roundup of soundbars, and uh, I talked to Brent at one point about some of the testing I guess you know we briefly touched on some of the frustrations of trying to deal with measuring uh, sound bars because they do so much um, 
surround like simulation with surround sound and when you're dealing with psychoacoustics things can sound great but objectively measure really squirrely or or measure in ways that would suggest they don't sound as good but human hearing is complicated and measuring uh sound is even weirder but uh they uh they would suggest roku's hundred dollar stream bar or the eighty dollar tautronics tt-sk023 and seriously if you buy either one of these do us a favor take care of the folks at the wirecutter use the links on wirecutter.com or the new york times wirecutter page but the tautronics was really interesting um there's no hdmi arc port but it apparently sounded utterly fantastic a shockingly good deal You'll need to use a, you know, optical connection or, or some other connection to your uh, television because there's no HDMI arc. One of the things they noted is a lot of the, the sub $200 soundbars they demoed had issues. If you can swing 200 bucks, that's the next big jump from those two I just mentioned uh, to a soundbar that doesn't have uh, no bass or weird bass or sibilance issues or dialogue issues or sounds like it was rattling apart like a washing machine on fire. Um, they uh, have a $200 reco from uh, JBL. Again, do yourself a favor, go over to wiretocutter.com. Uh, it's an excellent read. It's the best soundbar article. One of the things that's it's cool is Brent talks about how they blind tested using a group of people, the CTA 2010 measurements, which is essentially, that's the standardized measurement for subwoofer. And, you know, it is interesting to see what the actual real-world performance of the box that they call a subwoofer that comes with a lot of sound bars. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I so love the CTA 2010 output measurements. Uh, it's interesting stuff. Dark Underlord has a question that Rob can probably relate to on a deep emotional level, uh, or a tweet. And uh, he says, I've had three full of shits. I know it's really the other way around. Shit's the company, follows the product. And all three have pretty much died or become unusable by a Windows or Mac computer between one and two years of ownership. Tried everything. What should I buy next? I mostly like the audio jack and the big dial or knob. Um, so those should have a two-year warranty. And if it dies before two years, uh, go after them. You know, that I think they should be a fairly responsible company if they have if you have an issue with the product or the product dies. But you know, you had one die, which was really frustrating for me since I recommended it to you. Yep. It's currently in the electronic recycling box awaiting disposal. I took it apart. <sighs> I saw nothing obvious on the board. I didn't test every single component to see if maybe an individual part failed internally somehow with no there was no magic smoke. There was no stink. Right. There was no, nothing looked burned. Everything looked pretty much brand new. That's frustrating. Yeah. And I decided I am not going back down that route. I'm not sure if I actually did any research to see if other owners had similar issues. I would assume it can't be too complicated of a fix. I hope somebody comes up with something because that's, you know, right. it's going to the landfill or at least it's going to a recycling center. Don't send it to the landfill. And I just simply switched over to a USB, very simple USB knob, basically, that controls my window <laughs> sound. This is for my desktop usage. And I've right. switched back to the motherboard's built-in audio output for headphones. And that is working just fine. It provides yeah. very good quality for what I do and what I need right now. Motherboard audio has gotten so much better in the last decade. There are still atrocious examples, but more often than not, it's actually not awful. Shit's full of two, so it's 110 bucks, 109 bucks. It's a USB DAC amp uh, analog to digital converter with a knob, so it's a USB audio interface, right? Uh, microphone in, headphone out, steel case, volume knob, 
everybody in this podcast, probably most of you listening, love a good volume knob. But uh, there were a lot of these before being a streamer became a thing from uh, audio companies like Focusrite, PreSonus, and a whole bunch of high-end audio companies you probably aren't familiar with, gaming audio companies like Astro and Creative at Sennheiser. And now I feel like there are 72 zillion of them out there. And, uh, you know, I think, what was it you bought to replace? Because you bought something... Oh, it's actually a, you. You're actually using a USB volume control knob. And Correct. That's what you're using. So you have your volume knob by a USB. Just what was that? It's I up could on, not. Uh, <laughs> I could not give up the knob. I really do appreciate <laughs> having a physical knob for volume control. It just makes it so easy and convenient, especially yeah. when I'm switching between headphones and speakers that are built into devices and things like that. And so I picked up a thirty dollar literal. Uh, this company i'll put a link to this in the show notes but lit rock lit rock it, 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 they've sold thousands of them probably who knows but this is a very simple device it does provide uh, some extra functionality if you're into that and you need a, a push button in addition to more than just simple volume control but at right. its heart it's just a simple usb volume knob and like I said, I it's just a human the, interface uh, device, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think it, it requires no special drivers or anything. It seems to just work whatever you plug it into. And I find it very convenient. It doesn't offer that sweet analog control you get with something like the Fulla, but right. it's good enough for right now. And like I said, the output I'm receiving from my motherboard is superb at this point. Yeah. I'm not missing anything really other than that sweet analog control. <laughs> well, the the output from my motherboard is not superb, and there were some noise issues on the mic, uh, Jack. So I've got a Focusrite Scarlett 2i2. It's got to be close to 10 years old at this point. It has been hammering around desktops. It has traveled via backpack. It has been to at least eight CESs. Uh, I have used it because it's USB-powered. I have used it um, in a hallway to record uh, podcasts after events. The ADC quality, the measured quality on it is utterly ridiculous. It's like a 108 sign ad. It's it's a really clean interface for your microphone. The headphone jack is, is uh, if you measure it objectively, it's very weak compared to ded- dedicated headphone DACs. Uh, you know, you fire up the Audio Precision APX 555, the headphone app is meh. Uh, I never really noticed that because the reality is in most environments I'm in, it's not that quiet. Uh, but it does have a, 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 a little knob above the uh, headphone jack on that. Um, that sells for $109. But for pure knob lust, I got to give a shout out to Elgato's Wave XLR. I have no idea what the measured performance on this is. I don't know of anybody that's run it up against any kind of testing equipment. Um, But it's a really slick little device. It's a plastic box angled up towards you, big knob. LEDs follow how far the knob, I mean the uh, multifunctional control dial, is rotated. Um, The dial can be used for output volume or input gain. Uh, It's designed for an XLR mic, though. So if you don't have an XLR mic, you're going to need an adapter. and if you want to get an audio geek kind of thing going, uh, it supports VST plugins if you want to play around with that. It looks nice. And I got to say, I've, I've used a bunch of Elgato's HDMI adapters and stuff, and they're, they're, they seem to be doing a solid job with their engineering. So be curious to see if anybody gets ears on with one of those or runs measurements on them to see how it measures. But, uh, you know, if you're looking for something to, to give you the volume knob and you're not ready to experiment with Rob's USB volume knob, which is considerably more affordable. Uh, Elgato's Wave XLR might be fun for you to play around with. XLR? Forget that, man. 
<laughs> I'm using an XLR headset as we speak, sir. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. And you know, getting an XLR to quarter inch or eighth inch adapter isn't that hard. And a lot of people are using XLR microphones now. They're every. I mean, if I can buy an XLR microphone and freaking Best Buy, um, okay. times have changed, Rob. Times have changed. <laughs> Chips emailed askanavxl.com. So the International Trade Commission issued a final ruling that Google infringed on Sonos patents for Google Home speakers and Chromecast streamers. Google's response is to just kill the features on its products. Can consumers get their money back by returning the now defective products? Um, man, that's a good question. Uh you know, first of all, I think the response is actually going to be re- to replace Google's response is going to be replace all that hardware. But let's let's get to that in a second and catch everybody up on what's going on here. So Sonos pioneered that sort of around the house audio concept, right? And Sonos has won five of their patent suits at the ITC. Uh, Google has 60 days to appeal those. Um, and more importantly for Sonos and their bank account, there are two more patent suits that are winding their way through the federal U.S. court system. And the U.S. court system, unlike the ITC, can award damages. What the ITC can do and did is place a limited exclusion order, which basically says the Goog can't import certain audio tech or hardware because of these patent violations. So why do you care? Well, Sonos is legal chief. Uh, thinks these patents are kind of a big deal, and they cover Sonos's groundbreaking. Uh, let me quote here: They cover Sonos's groundbreaking invention of extremely popular home audio features, including the setup for controlling home audio systems, the synchronization of multiple speakers, the independent volume control of different speakers, and the stereo pairing of speakers. You know, which if if you like that whole party mode, and you turn your whole house, every speaker in your house, up and down, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, Google anticipated this. Uh, they did some redesigns. They showed them to the judge at the ITC. He says they don't violate the patents. You know, and the software changes that, that Chips is, is uh, responding to are uh, you will no longer be able to change speaker volume as a group. Uh, you will no longer be able to use the phone's hardware buttons to change speaker volume, which actually, to me, answers some questions I've had with some apps not doing that. It's like, why doesn't every app allow me to control the volume of what I'm doing with the volume buttons on my phone? Because apparently right. Sonos has a patent on that. Automatic up to, uh, software updates for smart speakers is going to be replaced by uh, Wired Wrote, a device utility app, because I guess you won't be allowed to do that directly from the application on the phone, question mark. Uh, I did not read through the rulings because I have a limited tolerance for legalese. Part of what gets interesting about this is Sonos pioneered this market. They partnered with Google in 2013, and essentially they say Google stole some of their intellectual property. I believe they have a similar relationship problem with Amazon, uh, which presumably uh, they will sue or settle with or ignore after the Google trial finishes winding its way through all the various and sundry court systems and appeals. I can't really blame Sonos. Patents only last so long. They can only be monetized so long. They're a publicly traded company, so they're supposed to go after stuff like this. They spent a lot of money in the early days putting this whole market together, so I can see where they would be super frustrated by this. I'm curious to see what happens, right? Because Google could probably afford to replace every single audio device they've ever sold, uh, you know, unless it, you know, unless it impacts things like phones and Chromebooks and stuff. But you know, it's uh, I will I will be curious to to hear how much of a complaint or how much of a noise we hear in Twitter and Reddit and other places when this goes into effect, if it hasn't already. 
we'll see. Uh, you know, I mean, chips, it's obvious that they have a plan for sort of, you know, replacing the design, but what I couldn't quite get is if that was available to existing products or if that was only going to be a new products, and we'll see how that goes. But, you know, this is not the first time we've seen patent fights. This just seems to be a very big one between, you, you think Sonos is big, but they're not compared to Amazon and Google. <laughs> oh my goodness, no. I mean, you talk about deep pockets and the ability to spend all the money you need for attorney services. When you could yeah. simply do the quote-unquote right thing and license the damn tech, which I'm sure everybody involved knew the underlying facts at some point <laughs> well before this had to go to court. But anyway, yeah. Google's got billions squirreled away you know if they need to they can just cut a check <laughs> and negotiate this unless you know sonos wants to go for uh you know wants to go for uh i mean it's crazy right i think the original reporting on this sonos said they they were pretty sure that google and amazon had violated something like a hundred patents that sonos holds um you know that's uh, uh, the whole distributed audio thing. That's that's a lot of patents to violate. We'll see how it goes. We'll yeah. See how it goes. Uh, Winter Olympics have fired up. As strange as it can be. <laughs> oh my goodness! You know, I I got a, I was on Daily Tech News show yesterday with Tom Merritt and the crew, and uh, Tom says our friend Tom says Peacock TV is is probably the uh, cheapest and most efficient way to get access to all the winter olympics although somebody was posting earlier today on uh, twitter that there were spoilers in the captions for different events and i was like why why would you do this peacock so hopefully they 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 aren't they fix the spoiling or or set things up but you know i was sitting there i was like because i was thinking oh gosh am i gonna have to we're gonna have to, you know, fire up YouTube TV for another month to to get access to the Olympics, and then I'm fortunate enough to have that in the household. So that made it very simple for me to simply yeah. select the events I'm interested in, click one button, and have it just simply record all of those episodes for me to go back and watch. I still find it frustrating that there isn't like a live app or a live actual real time feed, regardless of right. the you know time difference there may be. It's just, ah, whatever. Peacock TV. I'm not spending money for Peacock TV. I would rather just watch it. I did hook up my antenna for over-the-air reception. Speaking of which, I need to <laughs> double-check for ATSC3 coverage where I'm at currently. And oh. uh, see, what, <laughs> see if anything's being broadcast in 4K over the air, maybe, if I get lucky. We had this random cable that was came through a hole in the ceiling on the closet in the master bedroom, which I always assumed was cable. But it was not cable. Uh, when we've we had the the we had all of the uh, insulation vacuumed out of our attic, and the guys were like, uh, "Yeah, we found some the big plastic square up there." And uh, I got up there, and the big plastic square was an old RCA over-the-air digital antenna that somebody ran up there and then put six inches of insulation over the top of. <laughs> Great. Well, it was a different era. Yeah, it was. But uh, for me, I think I'll pay 10 bucks to have ad-free Olympics action because I just can't take, uh, you know, I just, I just can't take the commercials on a lot of the cable stations anymore. I feel you there, man. 
Plus the children. I don't want to expose the children to the commercials. <laughs> it sucks the life out of you. <laughs> yeah. Why expose yourself to that? You know, for ten bucks for a few weeks of Olympics, I can manage that. I can cover the. I can cover the ten. Uh, you uh, you have an off-topic tip of the week. Yeah, man. I just want to say I recently was having to go through a variety of my state's websites dealing with a group. Now, uh, oh, how can I put this? Uh, a number of individuals. Yes, and through my perusing of the various state government listing pages and whatnot, I came across their unclaimed property page. And if you have lived long enough, chances are there is something actually listed in there for you. Uh, check your individual state or any state you've lived in. They have an unclaimed property page. I suggest just putting in a first and a last name with no other information. Scroll through it and see if anything rings a bell. Uh, it could be a check for 31 cents or it could be thousands of dollars. It's free to check and... I had something pop up for a car I had purchased like 15 years ago or longer. Good golly. But anyway, apparently the dealership owed me money and didn't have my correct address and had no other way of contacting me. And it took so long, it finally went to the state where they are now the uh, custodians of potentially some cash for me. But anyway, it takes like a minute and it's fun. And I ended up telling a few friends, every one of my friends had something. One of them did have like a thir literally a thirty-one cent check from something, but, so that might not be <laughs> worth anyone's time. But again, give it a quick check. Check any states you've lived in or have interacted in, and uh, get your unclaimed property back, man. It's the way to go. It's a beautiful thing. With that, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, uh, hey, uh, quick shout out. Uh, I'll be talking about, I mentioned John Sieber and talking about digital volume control and that we're going to have uh, a chunk of that interview on the show. And we'll just lay the whole thing out uh, for our patrons if you want to have an extended listen. Uh, so that was around uh, JDS Labs Element 3, which is their latest update to my beloved uh, desktop headphone amplifier and DAC and uh, it is spectacular it has really I just you know what we'll uh, talk about more about that next week but uh, let's just say they've moved to digital volume control and uh, it's uh, it's exquisite it's very nice excellent uh, yeah yeah uh, tweet at Robert Heron at Patrick Norton at AVXL uh, if you want to point out something to us or if you want to ask us a question. Because remember, there's thousands of you. There's two of us, and y'all are always looking at doing exciting things, and your questions help us guide the show. Or if you want to help us cover the things that you're interested in, that's the easiest way to do it. Send us a question. Send us a suggestion to ask at AVXL.com or tweet at Robert Heron at Patrick Norton or at AVXL. And if you want to use a hashtag, hashtag AskAVXL works just fine. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.